Below a ridge on the rolling chalk downlands of the Somme stood a mighty German defensive position, the Schwaben Redoubt. Throughout the battles of 1916, this became a defining point in the soldiers' experience of the battles around Tiapfal. For our final episode of 2023, we return to the Somme battlefields and we return to a village that we've visited on previous occasions on the Old Frontline podcast. We're at Tiapfal, Thiepfal, as it's often called, a village that sat on a ridge that bore that name, the Thiepfal Ridge, and that was once one of the larger villages on the Somme front. Dominated by a chateau that employed a large number of people, there were rows of terraced houses here where the estate workers lived. The village was centred around a church and a village green. The chateau kind of dominated and looked down not just on the wood below, Chapval Wood, with a big park area beneath it that links the building of the chateau with the wood itself, but the chateau also looked down in many respects on the village itself. It was the dominant building. And today, more than a century after the Battle of the Somme, nothing remains of the chateau, and what dominates the village of Tiapval now is the huge Luchens Memorial, mighty Tiapval, the memorial that commemorates those who fell on the Somme, the missing of the Somme, men who were killed here in 1916. In fact, from when the British first arrived in 1915 through to the eve of the German offensive in 1918, but the majority of them from 1916 who have no known grave. But it's not that memorial to the missing that we've come to see in this episode. Where are we? Well, we're in the village of Tiapval itself. The memorial to the missing is behind us, as is the modern visitor centre, and we're standing outside the church in the middle of this village. It's a very small village now. The people who lived in that chateau that so dominated this community did not survive the Great War, so they never returned and the chateau was never rebuilt. And although a church was built and a town hall, a marie, it's a tiny community compared to what it had been before the Great War. The estate workers didn't return either, so those long rows of terraced houses were never rebuilt. So what we're looking at when we stand here in Tiapfal is mainly modern buildings, buildings built in the last two or three decades. There are very few from the 1920s period, but it still sits, of course, on the Tiapfal Ridge. And from here, we can see how and why this place dominated the story of the Battle of the Somme in this sector of the Somme battlefields in 1916, because we can stand here outside the church, look down the slopes of the ridge towards the trees of Chiapval Wood, and we can look to our right and follow the road as it drops down past that wood, past what is now the Ulster Tower, the memorial to the Ulster Division who fought here on the 1st of July, and we'll return to their story in this podcast, drops over the next ridge down into the Ankara Valley. The River Onk runs through that valley, connecting up the villages, heading down into the town of Albert, the main central town on the Somme front. And from here we've got 
an incredible view across this part of the Somme battlefields. This ridge dominates the modern landscape and it dominated the wartime landscape with the Germans using it as a means to properly defend the wider ground on this northern part of the Somme battlefields. The Germans of course dug trenches here and in the winter the scars, the ghost-like scars of those trenches can still be seen in some of these fields. The landscape has changed around Chiapval even in my time. When I first came here in the 1980s the remnants of the old park that had once linked the chateau with the wood was still there. There'd been a big circular drive which is visible on a lot of the aerial photographs and if you look at the IGN Historic Air Photos website, you'll see right up to the 60s the traces of this. It was probably still there in the 70s. But when I first came to the Somme in 82, the circular drive had gone, but a sunken lane, which was lined with trees and shrubs, ran from the Chapval to Hamel Road right into the corner of Chapval Wood and you could walk down that. It was very similar, not quite on the same scale as the sunken lane of Bowman Hamill, but not dissimilar. And at the time when I first went there, and it was grubbed out a few years later, and there's no trace of it at all now, except again when they plough, I discovered through Michael Stedman's excellent work on this area and his work on the Salford Powers that it was the jumping off point of the Salford Powers on the first day of the Somme, as they, part of the 32nd Division, came up the slopes towards where we're standing now, the 15th, 16th, 19th Battalions of the Lancashire Fusiliers, supported by the 16th Northumberland Fusiliers, cut down by machine gun fire from the 180th Regiment, the Württembergers, who defended this village, this part of the village, on that day. And where that lane ran into the corner of the ward, that was a dividing line between the two main formations that attacked here on the 1st of July, the 32nd coming up towards the village, and attacking on the far side of where the Chapval Memorial is now, around the area of the Leipzig Redoubt, and then the 36th Ulster Division who attacked from Chapval Wood towards the fields beyond. And it's not the wood, and it's not these slopes where the Powers came up, it's not even the front line of the Ulster Division that we're specifically interested in in this podcast, but it's one of the places that I think defines the Somme, and has become a byword certainly for the fighting in this area, and that is the Schwaben Redoubt. The village was completely devastated by shell fire in 1916, and what little remained of it was completely destroyed in the battles here in the spring and summer of 1918, so nothing as such of the original village of Tjatval remains. And I say as such because as we walk away from the church, and I'll put a map on the route that we're going to walk onto the podcast website. But as we walk away from the church and we take the road, that if we continued, would bring us to the next village, the village of Groncourt. As we come out past some of the houses there and we look out into the field on our left, particularly at the time of year when there's no crops in it, we can see a circular stone structure that's often got a pallet on the top. It used to have a little bit of narrow gauge railway line on top of it at one stage that is the last remnant of the original Chiapval village that's the village well and there are photographs of German soldiers around it during the war and it appears on some of the pre-First World War civilian postcards which existed of Chiapval village 
and that little tiny brick structure of a village that had been here for over a thousand years and had grown up with the construction of the chateau, the employment of people by the owners of that chateau over successive generations and the building up of Chapval as a prosperous little village in rural France where generations came and went, people lived their lives. And this simple but most basic of structures, something to draw water out of the depths of the earth to provide what is an essential human need, water to live, this is all that remains of the old world here, the pre-war world of Tiatval linking into the other old world of the war that swept through here between 1914 and 18. And from here, we're standing behind where the German frontline positions were. They came across from the chateau over the Hamel Road and then did kind of a dogleg turn near to where the well is located and then went across the fields towards where we can see the Ulster Tower today and in between us and there is Mill Road Cemetery out in the fields of British and Commonwealth Cemetery roughly located on part of the German front line and to the left of that as we look towards the wood we can see Connaught Cemetery roughly located on the British front line or the Ulster front line of the first day of the Battle of the Somme. So we can see immediately from here the kind of perspective that the Germans had, positions that were built up over a long time and the fields of fire that they would have had in that opening stage of the Battle of the Somme. If we continue along the road however and we come to a point where a little track goes off to the left, the road continues off to Grandcourt, beyond it we can see a line of trees going down the steep escarpment that leads into the wider aspect of the Ancre Valley and that's well behind the German lines, it's positions where they had some of their field guns and their heavy trench mortars for example and where their communication trenches ran up towards the forward area of the battlefield. But this little junction that we're at and there's an area of trees here and a fence and a gate, this is the village cemetery, it's the village cemetery today but it was also the village cemetery before the Great War and I believe in the early stage of the conflict the Germans may have even buried a few of their dead in here as well. There's a little bit of remnants of some of the older graves and in the winter you can see how undulating the ground in this triangular shaped area of cemetery is. They're shell holes. This area was just plastered to bits by bombardments both in 1916 and again on two occasions as we've mentioned in 1918. So it was devastated ground, very much part of the red zone, the zone rouge, that area of almost total destruction in northern and eastern France. And the cemetery still kind of reflects that. But the track is the important thing here because the track takes us to this iconic Somme location. Many people believe that the Schwaben Redoubt is beneath Mill Road Cemetery or much closer to the Ulster Tower. But when you look at the trench maps, both British and German, and you use a digital trench map product like Linesman from Great War Digital, or you could use a free bit of software, which is the WFA Trench Mapper website, where you can go on there and you can load up trench maps and run a kind of slider backwards and forwards to make them less visible and, and look at Google Earth beneath it to get an idea where things were. And when you do that, when you do a bit of map work, I mean, back in the day, we didn't have that. 
So I used to hand draw maps over blue series French IGN maps. I'd squiggle on where the trenches were and work out where these positions had once been. And when you do that, you find that this famous, this infamous Schwaben Redoubt is behind their front line. And it's just partway down this track. As we look down the line of the track and we can see the contours of the ground dipping and rising, we're looking towards where the Schwaben Redoubt was located. So that track, this pathway of the Great War, will take us there now. So we follow that track down and into the fields to a point where we can see the rising ground towards that line of trees across to our right and then to our left we can see Mill Road Cemetery sitting on a bit of rising ground there looking towards the tree line of Tiatval Wood. And we're now standing pretty much on the site of the Schwaben Redoubt. So what was the Schwaben Redoubt? The line around Tiatval was formed by the Germans and obviously the French at that stage opposite them during the winter of 1914-15. And the German units that constructed the defences here across the Tiatval Ridge around the village and in the fields where we're standing now, those units were part of the 26th Reserve Division. This was a Württemberger division that had a key role on the Somme from the very earliest stage of the fighting right through to the momentous battles here in 1916. It was made up not uniquely of men from Württemberg, but largely, and these Württemberg units that served here were in some ways kind of German POWs battalions and they were locally recruited in these areas. 180th that had defended the village, for example, came from Stuttgart. They eventually had a Tjatval barracks in Stuttgart, which I went to see back in the 1980s during my research into these Württemberg units and my research in the Württemberg archives at Stuttgart. The whole archive of this division and all of the units that served here survives and quite a lot of that material now all these years later is online which is really good so the units of the 26th reserve division they built this defensive system around Tiapval and they had fought the French here on the slopes of the ridges and on the edges of the woods and in the fields in those early battles of September October of 1914 still part of the war of maneuver where both sides were kind of brushing up against each other in places like this and there was fighting in some of the fields here casualties on both sides really the kind of warfare probably that these men had trained for before the war both the Germans and the French units who were opposite them which from the top of my head I think were largely territorial units so there was an exchange of fire there was some minor skirmishes in this area and then both sides began to dig in, with the Germans occupying the high ground and the French pushed back largely in this area to the ground around Tiatval Wood. So the Germans had fought the French on these slopes and that resulted in stalemate of digging in, digging deep. But they saw the construction, certainly in this area, of defensive lines like these as a temporary measure to dig in winter quarters and wait for the battles that would end the war the following year and when the war 
from their perspective, would go mobile again. But that, of course, didn't happen. The creation of the Western Front, 450 miles of trenches, that resulted in this huge siege war with both sides besieging each other along those 450 miles. So positions were dug by the Germans in that early stage along the spur of ground facing Tiatval Wood and then swinging rounds in a kind of, as we've said, a kind of dogleg shape heading towards the Ankara Valley. And then there was a second line of defence. In the early stages, front line was built and they realised they needed a full-back position. This is both sides, really. So a front line, support line, reserve line. These became the kind of standard practice to build a defensive position, whether that was on the German side or on the French or the British side. So a second line position was built in this area where we're standing now, initially trenches. And then it was realised that here, where the slopes came down towards where this track was, and this would be a direction that the enemy would come if they attacked and overran your front line, here you could build a defensive position, a link pin really, a central point which would bind your other defences together and enable you to throw an enemy attack back. So a defensive position was constructed here around the trenches itself, which was initially called the Schwaben Schanzer, the Schwaben Earthworks. So it wasn't kind of a big defensive position at that point, but it was still bigger than a normal trench. And what of the name Schwaben? Well, this is a kind of abbreviation of Schwabian. Schwabia, Schwaber is now a part of Germany mostly divided between the modern states of Baden-Württemberg and Bavaria in southwest Germany. So it refers to a region of Germany where quite a lot of men from the 26th Reserve Division came from. So that's how the name came about. And it's interesting that a lot of these battlefield names that we know from a British and Commonwealth perspective are names that were given to those positions by Allied troops during the war itself when the trench maps were constructed. But here, both sides called the Schwaben Redoubt the Schwaben Redoubt. That Schwaben name was picked up by both sides, possibly because of intelligence gathered by the French, maybe later the British, when they raided the positions here and took some German soldiers prisoner. So when we stand here and, and look around us, particularly towards Mill Road Cemetery and Chatval Wood, we can see that the Schwaben Redoubts, the Schwaben Schanzer as it was originally called, was built on a reverse slope position. And what that means is that it was sighted on ground that dropped away from the main battlefield area and you sighted your positions there. They couldn't then be seen by the enemy in their front lines. They were hidden in a bit of dead ground. And if the enemy attacked and as their troops approached it, they would get to a point where they would be on a ridge line and be skyline to be perfect targets for the men in this defensive position. So that was part of its strength, the way that it was located, the way it was sighted on the actual landscape and the rolling nature of the Somme battlefields was crucial really to the construction of positions like this. For most of 1915, after those initial battles and when it was clear that this stagnant trench warfare was not going away, it was going to be a static line for a long time, the Schwaben Schanzer, the Schwaben Redoubt, was still a fairly small position connected to other positions across the fields towards 
filmed a Mukai, Mukai farm, which was used as a headquarters and medical posts, signaling positions, so on by the Germans. But it wasn't as big and definitive a kind of linchpin in the overall defence as it later became. By 1916, however, when the Germans realised that they've now been here for almost two years, and with the arrival of the British having taken over this sector from the French in 1915, the Germans realised that some kind of offensive would probably come their way, and this position would be very important in any defence that the 26th Reserve Division would make of this ground. And when we look at the maps from this period, seeing the enlargement of the position, the building of new trenches, to create this kind of almost oval shape, which is where the name redoubt comes from. That's an old military term that describes a usually circular-shaped position, which would normally have wire around it and other defences within it to supplement the men who might defend it. This now became something much bigger, and on the German maps it's now known as Festerschwaben. So this is become it's moved from just earthworks to a proper defensive position to become a redoubt the german maps also show that there were battalion level headquarters within the redoubt so when the germans occupied the line here one of their battalions would have their hq here their headquarters and its companies would be up in the front line close to where mill road is now and facing the french and later the british in chapval wood and when we also look at the map, we see that there are other features, like the cookers were located here. So again, being on a reverse slope position, the cookers, where hot food was prepared for the men in the front line, this was a fairly safe place to have those, and also close proximity to your actual front line, so you can prepare the food here, and carrying parties can take it up to the soldiers, the soldaten in the front line. There was a signal station here as well, because if you have a battalion headquarters and you have your other kind of rear echelon part of your unit to keep your men in the line, food, men to command it and control it, you also need the ability to communicate. And the Germans had the same kind of signalling practices as the British and Empire forces. So they had signal sections that used static telephones to communicate with forward positions. So company headquarters and listening posts and machine gun positions would have been linked up by these telephone communications and when that failed during enemy bombardments that broke them up and cut those lines of communication the German signalers would have used lamps they would have had what was called a blinksteller here which was a lamp post where they could flash morse from a forward position back to a relay post, the Blinksteller, and then send that back to another position where it would be handed towards a headquarters. And if there was one here, then Battalion HQ could find out what was going on in the company forward positions from their headquarters when that was morsed back via the lamps. Or again, the Germans also used flags and other apparatus to signal as well. So it was all part of the kind of network of positions. It wasn't just firing positions that was located in this redoubt. And when we discuss firing positions, there were machine gun positions that were located here. So if you're defending a position like this and you put it on a reverse slope, the enemy's going to attack. You need machine guns to lay down area fire to chew that enemy attack up as it comes over the top of that ridge towards your positions. And the Germans from the very beginning used trench mortars on a large scale, Kleiner Minenwerfers, the smaller trench mortars and the larger Minenwerfer company bigger trench mortars the big minis the huge sausage shaped bombs that seem to travel like a slow express through the air 
and land on their target, there are positions for those as well. So it's a kind of network of defences. You've got the essential stuff like command and control, headquarters, the ability to communicate. You've got positions for your rifle teams, and then you've got machine gun and trench mortar positions as well. Now, one element that the Schwaben Redoubt is famous for are tunnels. And in fact, despite much myth, German maps do show deep dugouts in this area, but no tunnels. When I looked at some of the maps in the Württemberg archives in Stuttgart, that was one thing that surprised me with this area. No evidence of kind of mass tunnels. Dugouts, yes. Tunnel systems, not. But there were, of course, communication trenches, some of which may have been partly covered, that then took men up towards the front line and away from this position back towards Roncourt, for example. And I think that tunnel myth comes from some of the guidebooks that were published that said the headstones laying flat in Mill Road Cemetery, the Commonwealth Cemetery you can see across the fields, were done because the tunnels of the Schwaben Redoubt beneath the cemetery had collapsed, and that led to the flattening of that plot and the headstones being laid down flat on the ground. What actually happened there was there was a large German dugout Originally, the headstones had been placed upright in the normal fashion, but there was a large German dugout underneath that plot, part of the forward area of the battlefield, which began to collapse in the post-Second World War period, and that's when that plot was changed. And somehow down the line, that has been translated from a dugout, a collapsing dugout, and the change in the design of that plot to being tunnels, which are kind of, I guess, fitted with the kind of popular idea that the Germans used tunnels on a large scale. Well, they, they did on the Somme front. Chalk downland was perfect for it, but not here, not at the Schwaben Redoubt. There were dugouts, there were trenches, communication trenches, but there's no evidence for a mass of tunnel systems. So that was the work that was done on the Schwaben Redoubt in the lead-up to the battle. And when the plans for the attack was made here, for the assault that would become the Battle of the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Somme, the air photos clearly showed a defensive position here. It was clearly marked on our trench maps, and when it came to the artillery plan, this was a position that would have to be bombarded, and bombarded it was in those seven days leading up to the 1st of July. There's a lot of German accounts in their unit histories and individual accounts from men who came under that terrific trommel fire, drum fire, in these positions in the front line and here in the Schwaben Redoubt. And on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the unit that was planned to advance through here was the 36th Ulster Division. Now this was a division of Kitchener's army that had been formed in the northern part of Ireland. Ireland was a much bigger country then. Northern Ireland was not a country that existed on its own, but in the north, regiments like the Royal Inn and Skilling Fusiliers and Royal Irish Rifles recruited men on a localised basis, just as was happening right across Britain, mainland Britain, and these POWs battalions that became part of the eventual Ulster Division were formed, and they came across to France in 1915, took over positions on the northern part of the Somme front, and gradually worked their way down to take over these positions at Tiatval Wood in front of Tiatval in the lead-up to the Battle of the Somme in 1916. They were a highly motivated, highly trained and disciplined division with a good reputation, good commanders and good battalion commanders on the whole. 
and men linked together by their faith, by their community, and a good esprit de corps that would carry them forward. And in fact, they were one of a number of formations, despite the myth of the 1st of July being men are going over the top and advancing at walking pace in broad daylight towards the enemy and being cut down in no man's land, there were units like the Ulster Division that actually attacked before zero hour. So when the Ulster men went over, they went over before the barrage lifted and they were out in no man's land. There was a danger in that, of course, with shells and the British bombardment dropping short and landing on the Ulstermen as they moved forward across no man's land. But what it meant is they were almost on top, if not on top, of the German wire when it came to half past seven in the morning, zero hour, and the assault on these positions. And the Ulster division advanced cut by the Ankara Valley. They had one brigade of four battalions on the other side of the valley and the bulk of their forces on the slopes that dropped down to that valley and coming out of Chatval Wood towards the Schwaben Redoubt. Their objective was to advance, push down the valley, take the village of Bokor on the left in this area, advance through the Schwaben Redoubt and continue towards Grandcourt. Other units would pass through them, will be in Bapaum by nightfall, Berlin by Christmas, all that kind of stuff. And that was their, that was essentially their plan and despite the fact that they had got across no man's land pretty quickly that the wire was quite effectively cut in most places and the Ulstermen got into the positions of the front line fought their way through the German front line into the Schwaben Redoubt where we're standing now the Germans then reacted pretty quickly and dropped down a box barrage onto no man's land cut off the men who'd got into the German positions making the manoeuvre of reserve troops from the woods come up and support and bring up extra bombs and ammunition and everything else. Very difficult during the course of the battle here. And their attempt by the Germans, their attempt was to try and cut those men who'd got into their positions off and then deal with them with counter-attacks. And that really became the battle of the 1st of July. The Ulstermen never really got much beyond where we're standing now, but they got into this redoubt and there was heavy fighting within this redoubt and a lot of improvised fighting and the men ran out of ammunition they ran out of bombs they started picking up german weapons and german hand grenades and one of the victoria crosses that was awarded in this area where we're standing now was to eric bell he was originally an inniskilling fusiliers officer and he'd become part of the brigade trench mortar unit they were issued with stokes mortars and he'd gone forward with his stokes mortar men they'd been knocked out in the advance and he still had quite a lot of bombs that he could use, but no weapons to fire them from. So he used them like big grenades. Stokes mortars have a pin and a spoon, a lever, just like a Mills bomb. And you can pull that pin out, let the lever go, and you're on a time fuse, and you can chuck that bomb. I mean, you need some pretty hefty strength to be able to do that, but you can chuck that bomb at positions, down dugout steps, into trenches, and that's exactly what Eric Bell did. And... For that, he was awarded a Victoria Cross, a posthumous Victoria Cross. The citation read, For most conspicuous bravery, he was in command of a trench mortar battery in advance with the infantry in the attack. When the front line was hung up by enfiladed machine gun fire, Captain Bell crept forward and shot the machine gunner. Later, on no less than three occasions, when our bombing parties, which were clearing the enemy's trenches, were unable to advance, he crept forward alone and threw trench mortar bombs amongst the enemy. When no more bombs were available, he stood on the parapet under intense fire and used a rifle with great coolness and effect on the enemy, advancing to counter-attack. 
Finally, he was killed rallying and reorganising infantry parties which had lost their officers. All this was outside the scope of his normal duties with his battery, and he gave his life in his supreme devotion to duty. Eric Bell's bravery was beyond comparison almost. This is his first battle. These men have never been in action before. They've been in the front line for a long time, but this is their first major engagement. And when it came to someone standing up and doing their bit, Eric Bell was kind of without par, really, without comparison in that. And sadly, he was not only one of over 5,000 casualties in the Ulster Division on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, he was one of so many who was killed that day, whose grave was never found after the war, whose body was never recovered. And he's listed within sight of his action. If we look across the fields now, through Chatval Woolwich to the high tower, the high structure of the Chatval Memorial, that's where Eric Bell's name is found. And so many of the men of the Ulster Division who perished in this fight here. What happened was during the course of the day, despite bravery by men like Bell, the Ulstermen were gradually pushed back, fewer in numbers, running out of ammunition. They were pushed back to the German front line, and that German front line was then occupied. So for the loss of over 5,000 Ulstermen, they held a section of German trench from in front of the Schwaben Redoubt, across through where the Ulster Tower is today, which we can see across the fields, and then down towards a position known as the Pope's Nose and just beyond. Behind them was the 49th West Riding Division, and they were a Yorkshire Territorial Division that had been in Ypres, come under a gas attack at Ypres in December 1915, held the line up there on the Isar Canal near Bozinger for a long time, and then they'd moved down to the Somme in the months before the battle and had served in and out the trenches at Chatval, relieving the Ulstermen, the Ulstermen relieving them. And now they were the immediate battle reserve for the attack here. So some of those West Riding units then came up and continued with the fight on the 1st of July. It's one of the forgotten aspects of the Chatvale battle here, is that these Yorkshire lads were very much involved in it. When I lived in Elsica, the nearest older house to where I lived, at the top of the hill there, the lad who lived in there was killed on this spot on the 1st of July 1916 with the 1st, 5th York and Lanx. They were the local territorial battalion for Rotherham and Elsica and Hoyland and Barnsley and many of those lads from many of those places were killed and wounded here on that first day of the Battle of the Somme, and the West Riding Division would continue to play a really important role in this battle over the course of the next few months. So, with the fighting here on the 1st of July, and although the British, the Ulstermen, had entered the Schwaben Redoubt, the Germans had thrown them back, and it was still in German hands, this became part of now the contested positions around Chiapval, and the battle of the Schwaben then continued. Rather than big attacks, as on the 1st of July, it was a lot of localised attacks. The German front line was now the British front line, and parts of the communication trenches that once linked that German front line with the Schwaben became the forward posts, which were contested at bomb blocks, where there was a blockage basically across the trench with British troops on one side and the Germans on the other side and that kind of localised fighting continued in this area and gradually wore down the units involved in it. So if we look at the West Riding Division involvement in that over the course of the whole of July and on into August, in those kind of localised battles they tried to capture one bit of trench, another bit of trench, and then push towards the Schwaben Redoubt. In that July and August period alone, that division 
lost over 204 officers and 4,971 men. So that was a considerable number of casualties for not fighting as such in a big battle, but you're fighting localised battles within a bigger operation to try and push the Germans back. And the line did move forward, but very often the Germans would counterattack and then retake that ground. So it, it was a, a typical kind of attritional to and fro in this area around the Schwaben at that time. The next big battle in this area was on the 3rd of September 1916, when four battalions from the West Riding Division made an attack here. These were units of the West Riding Regiment, the Duke of Wellington's, and also the West Yorkshire Regiment. Their attacks got into bits of the Schwaben again, but made very little progress, and only handfuls of men really made any kind of entry into the Schwaben itself, and these units lost over 1,200 casualties that day. When you go to Milrose Cemetery and you wander around the plots there, the 3rd of September 1916, and the cap badge of the Duke of Boots, the Duke of Wellingtons, and the West Yorkshire Regiment is very prominent in that cemetery, giving a bit of an indication as to how important the day that was, the 3rd of September 1916. And, and for the West Riding Division, that was really their swan song on the Somme. They pulled out of the Somme front and moved off to another sector. So what we've seen by the early stage of September, two months into the Battle of the Somme, two entire divisions have been thrown against this ground and both those divisions had suffered significant losses in the fighting. The Ulsterman over 5,000 casualties in the first couple of days of July of 1916 and then the West Riding Division in those attritional battles of July and August, they'd suffered well over 6,000 casualties. So we can already begin to see just how much this ground was beginning to cost the British Army. But not just the British Army as well. Of course, the German defenders of this ground also suffered greatly. And the units that were there at the beginning of the battle were gradually wound down by these British attacks. And they were then relieved and other units came in. And we've got a, an account just to give us kind of a, an insight into what conditions were like on this part of the battle from a German perspective. We've got an account from Witzfeldwebel uh, Collitz of the 4th Company, Infantry Regiment Number 66, who remembered what the battlefield was like at this time in September of 1916. At no time during the entire war did we work as hard as we did then in the hell called the Schwaben Redoubt. It was a hell where we worked each night like men possessed. Taken from morning to night, we despaired as shells poured down on us. The British had spotted our work on the new dugouts despite all our attempts to conceal it. At a slow tempo the British brought down shells on our heads which were intended to bury us in our holes or crush us. They used shells with delay fuses which bored down two to three metres into the earth before exploding and crushing their surroundings. I lay with twenty others, packed like sardines, in the staircase of a newly begun dugout. So the battle here continued until a decision was made to try and push the Germans off this strong point of Tjatval. It was clear that the German lines had to be cleared here for the battle to progress in any meaningful way in this area. So a new division was brought up to take part in the fighting and that was the 18th Eastern Division. They were another Kitchener's Army unit formed at the beginning of the war they trained for a year in Britain and then come out to the Western Front in the summer of 1915 
and they'd been on the Somme ever since in the southern sector around Fricourt and La Boiselle and then they'd taken part in the attack on the 1st of July, successful attack on the southern sector around Montauban and Mametz, fought captured Trones Wood and then they'd moved up to take part in the fighting here at Chiapval in September of 1916. They were a highly motivated, well-commanded division. Sir Ivan Maxey was their divisional commander, greatly respected by the men and became really one of the most important and influential officers at divisional level and then eventually corps level during the entire Great War. His influence on the wider British army and the way it fought its battles was significant. And in this attack here, when he looked at the ground and when his staff looked at the ground, rather than try and take Thiepval by going up the slopes where the men of the Salford Powers and the Newcastle Commercial had come on the 1st of July, he came from the other side, from the Leipzig Redoubt area. He had tanks to support him and a very clever bombardment as well. So that attack on Tiatval was successful and the village and the surrounding area was captured on the 26th, 27th of September 1916. But the Schwaben Redoubt on the flanks of the village still remained in German hands. And in the weeks that followed, a further slogging match took place across this ground by battalions of that 18th Eastern Division. And also another division then comes into the fray, the 39th, another Kitchener's Army Division. And a lot of the battalions in both these formations are home county units. So in the 18th Eastern, you've got Norfolk's and Suffolk's, Queen's Royal West Surrey's, East Surrey Regiment. You've got in the 39th Division, Royal Sussex Battalions. And you've got Sherwood Foresters and Hampshires. So a lot of units are involved in the battle here, unit after unit kind of passes through here and I could spend the rest of the podcast just listing all the different British battalions that were part of the different engagements in this area this wider area of the Schwaben. Amongst those home counties regiments that were here Royal Sussex were the South Downs battalions 11th 12th and 13th Royal Sussex and they've been a long-term interest of mine and I interviewed quite a lot of veterans of that unit some of whom fought here in the Schwaben Redoubt. And for them, it was a significant kind of turning point in their war experience because here in the Schwaben, when they got into the positions here, they came under a German counter-attack that was led by Flammenwerfer, by flamethrowers. And this was the first time the South Downs had ever come under an attack from that kind of weapon. And in the close confines of trench warfare, where the Germans are laying down a flame bombardment into those trenches, you can imagine the terrible kind of results that unfolded in that fighting. One of those veterans that I knew particularly well who was in the South Downs Battalions was Albert Banfield, who I've mentioned a few times on this podcast. And this was part of his memories of being here in the Schwaben Redoubt in that autumn of 1916. After passing what seemed like miles of shell holes in the darkness, we entered a communication trench and eventually arrived at trenches recently captured from the Bosch, now practically a succession of shell holes with dead German bodies lying here and there, tons of waste equipment sprawled about, and occasionally a yawning hole where a deep dugout pierced the soil. We had a very warm reception, Fritz strafing vigorously, and for the first time since Rischborg, I had shrapnel raining down on my tin hat. The Schwaben Redoubt was finally captured on the evening of the 14th of October 1916, when a combined attack by the 4th-5th Black Watch, 
the 1st 1st Cambridgeshires and the 17th Kings Royal Rifle Corps, who were all units in the 39th Division, advanced over the open through sticky mud and pushed out the last defenders from the German unit that was here, the 110th Reserve Infantry Regiment, taking over 150 prisoners from that unit in the process. The 1st 1st Cambridgeshires, who were part of that division, were actually a territorial battalion, as were the 1st 5th Black Watch. So in a Kitchener's Army division, there were two Terrier battalions in there as well. And the 1st 1st Cambridges had a very good old Comrades Association after the war and published a really good regimental history, which is effectively a battalion history because there was only one battalion of that regiment that served overseas. And it's a really good account. It's been reprinted by Naval and Military Press, well worth looking out for. And this is their account of that fighting that resulted finally in the capture of the Schwaben Redoubt. Our men had reached the German front line without loss. There the infantryman's battle began. It was grim work. The Germans had contested every foot of their ground. With bayonet and bomb, the opposing sides had fought to a finish as one pack of wolves fights another. In the daylight of the trenches and the dark of the dugouts, the battle raged. Hot blood, the lust of war and fear, allowed of no quarter being given or asked for. Those who wish to live must kill first. The struggle on the Cambridgeshire front lasted for two hours. Then our men turned their attention to the right, where the Germans had held back our friends the Black Watch. There the struggle for supremacy went on far into the night. Being short of bombs and ammunition, our men used those of the enemy until about 10 o'clock, when they, with the 17th Kingsroy Rifles and the Black Watch, were in possession of the whole of the Schwaben Redoubt. From now onwards, the work of consolidating the captured positions was pushed forward with all speed, the 234th Field Company Royal Engineers and two companies of the Gloucesters assisting. So this was the Schwaben Redoubt captured, but of course the Germans immediately counterattacked to try and take it back, including again with flamethrowers. Flamethrowers are very much part of the fighting in and around this position in 1916, something that sometimes we perhaps don't always take into account. We think of them being used in big battles to lead an assault, for example, whereas here they were used on a regular basis for German counterattacks to try and throw those British advances back. But this time, the redoubt was lost to them. Despite those flamethrowers, despite the German attempt to retake this ground, it was repulsed by those units of the 39th Division, and the Schwaben redoubt was finally in British hands for good. It had cost the British forces who fought here in multiple different units and divisions at least 20,000 casualties since the beginning of the Battle of the Somme. And when you look at the different formations that were here, you see how so many of them entered the battle, entered the fray here, either at the beginning of the Somme on the 1st of July or in those later wearing down battles and came out the other side pretty much destroyed. And the Germans, of course, must have suffered just as many casualties themselves in defending this ground because every time it was taken, counterattacks came in and the Germans lost casualties in those. So we could be looking at tens of thousands, 40,000 plus casualties in this one little area of the Somme battlefields where we're standing now in these fields surrounding this lane that we're on, this track that we're on, where the Schwaben Redoubt was once located. 
As the Somme came to an end, the front line moved away from here, nearer to that village of Groncourt, out of sight to our right, and the Schwaben Redoubt became a reserve position behind the British forward line of defence in this sector. In the winter of 1916-17, that cold winter of the war, when the temperature on the Somme front dropped below minus 20, this was vast open ground smashed to pieces by the bombardments of 1916 with just endless shell holes and men were living in those forward positions, living in those shell holes during that incredibly cold weather and we can only really begin to imagine what that must have been like. The ground was then taken back, the Germans withdrew to the Hindenburg line in the spring of 1917 and the battles moved there but in the spring of 1918 the Germans broke through on the Somme front and this ground was captured in March 1918 as the Germans pushed hard and to the south took the town of Albert for example. It was then retaken once more and we can see now the, the whole kind of toing and froing in this sector throughout those years of the Great War with the French fighting the Germans here in the early phase the Battle of the Somme in 1916, a kind of gap as the Germans withdrew to the Hindenburg Line and the fight moved to another part of the Western Front. But then in 1918, two big offensive operations went through here, the Germans in the spring and the British pushing the Germans back in the summer. And units of the 17th Northern Division advanced through this ground and retook this part of the Thiepval Ridge. And at war's ending with this destroyed landscape, overgrown with waist-high grass and shallow trenches and shell holes and rusting wire. That remained then, but very quickly the landscape was recovered. The civilian population returned. Thietval was never rebuilt on the scale that it had been before the war, but it was farmed again, and gradually that farming eroded the scars of battle from the Great War. And when we stand here now, nothing can be seen of the mighty Schwaben Redoubt, except at certain times of the year when the deep ploughing takes place, we can see those ghost-like scars in the fields where the trenches of the Festerschwaben once stood. So we continue along this track with the ghosts of this battlefield behind us, and the track rises up, and we can look down into the vast valley of the Onk. There was two months or more of attritional fighting in the area around the Schwaben Redoubts and in the Ankara Valley attacks had been made there on the 1st of July but this was not cleared until the very end of the battle in November of 1916. We can see the difference in what happened at the beginning of the Battle of the Somme if we look back to Thietval and see what just trying to get up those ridges or across that ground cost on the first day of the Battle of the Somme and then if we contrast that by looking down into the valley and seeking with our eyes the village of Hamel with some of its modern hangars on the slopes above the village indicating roughly where the British front line had been at the beginning of the battle and then we sweep across that valley to an isolated little square wood in the fields just beyond the village of Beaucourt, the Bois de Hollande. That's where the Battle of the Somme came to an end in November of 1916 and we can see kind of advance it was possible at the end of the Somme that wasn't possible at the beginning. We can see that that 1st of July battle, as I've said before on this podcast, perhaps looked back to Waterloo, to an older type of warfare, but a new world was developing and the battle in November 1916, with the lessons learned through the fighting on the Somme that year, perhaps looked forward 
to the kind of war that was fought in Normandy in 1944. The war never remained static. It was a static war of static trench warfare, but the approach to trying to break that static nature continued to evolve, and we can see that just by standing here on the landscape of the Great War on the Ancre Valley. So following the track down, it goes off to our left at one point, and that would link up to the Pope's nose and the little observation bunker that's there and the Ulster Tower itself. And we continue down into the next little village. We can see the church just comes into view on our left. It's quite a big church for what is really not much more than a hamlet. And this is the village of Saint-Pierre-Divion, really ensconced in the valley itself, close to the River Onc, the anchor. And this was behind the German lines right up until the capture of this ground in November of 1916. It kind of hung out as a last part of bastion of defence while the Schwaben to the north was captured and the area around the Pope's nose fell. And on the other side of the valley, the German positions there kind of gave it fire support from the ground beyond where the Ancre Cemetery is and the sloping ground on the north bank of the Onc as it goes up towards the neighbouring village of Beaumont Hamel. This was that last bastion of defence in this area. It fell to men of the 39th Division who'd battled so strongly in the operations in the Schwaben Redoubt in November of 1916, and the fight then moved on, running parallel to where the Royal Naval Division were advancing on Beaucourt towards that little square wood that we saw in the fields of Bois de Hollande and Ballas Court Farm beyond, where in this area the Battle of the Somme came to an end. In the banks as we walk down through the village, the banks to our left, the sheer escarpment that comes down from that high ground looking back towards where the Schwaben was. We can see big indentations in the bank there, part, no doubt, of the German dugout and defensive positions. And near to one of the buildings in the village that had once been a cafe, there's a strange bit of kind of trench art there, really, which is a German Stahlhelm steel helmet with a British 18-pounder shrapnel shell above it. And I'll put a picture of this onto the podcast website so you can see it. And when we stand there, we've kind of come to the end of our journey, really. We've walked from the top of the Thiepval Ridge through the ground where the Schwaben Redoubt was located, come up over that high ground, looking down into the Ancre Valley, and ended here at Saint-Pierre-Divion. And here in the valley of the Ancre, with the light flickering through the trees and the sound of water from the river dashing towards the ruins of an old mill, which once stood close to the forward trenches in this sector, we pause at what was a defining part of the 1916 Somme battlefields. That ground from the Schwaben to the Onk stood for so much of that Somme battle and for so much of its loss too. Some men never left this ground and they lay there still for all time. Others turned their back on the flares and they became different men after their encounter with the Schwaben. So for many veterans, when they look back, darkness often crept across the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. 
And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline.